everybody, welcome to the May 29th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the lawsuit facing the Fremont School District from one of its own teachers, claiming that a church operating within Florence High School is a violation of the separation of church and state. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, this was kind of a crazy story. The, I guess it's the cowboy church and pizza parties and cafeteria. The, the story's all over the place. What do you think? Well, I'm all about cowboys, I'm all about pizza parties, but you cannot have a church come in and have the pizza party during school hours, which is what they were doing. Originally, they'd been renting on a Sunday, and churches in town, churches are having trouble finding places, so they're in shopping malls. I guess maybe they can be in schools off hours on a Sunday, but they had gone way too far. Todd Shepard, editor of CompleteColorado.com. Uh, were you surprised to see that this lawsuit came from one of the district's own teachers? Uh, no, not really. I guess that makes sense if you look at it from a standing perspective, right? You want to make sure that the person who's bringing the suit has the, the, the ability to see it through. But I think, generally speaking, we all know that, and obviously we'll get to the legal expert here in a second, but I think we can all agree that the courts are very liberal in, in these types of cases, and they really, uh, I mean, in general, it's it's against the expansive use of the religion in the territories and 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 so uh, because we have this history this long history I think we should all expect a settlement on this uh, it's not going to this is not going to carry out we should expect a settlement before the beginning of the next school year wow. Craig Silverman the already uh, referred to legal expert of the panel today uh, attorney with Silverman Levis and a radio talk show host on KNUS. Uh, give us the legal background of this, or at least the, the, the synopsis. Is this a slam-dunk case, or is it going to be a pretty big battle? Well, all we have right now is the complaint, but the complaint spells out a lot of interesting facts, complete with pictures. I am going to have the attorney, Paul Maxim, on my show tomorrow morning, so I will learn more, but on the surface, it looks like there might be a violation, but I expect the school district has dug in its heels. Most attorneys would first approach the school district and say, do you want to settle this out of the court, or should we put forth a publicity uh, bombardment? Because they did it through coordination of a media professional, Denver Post, all the news stations ready to go. And the high school looks bad, the Fremont School District, but I'm not sure they will settle. I do think they went over the line. Look, I'm not just a legal expert, but I'm an expert on being Jewish. And this plaintiff is Jewish, and I'll tell you, I like being Jewish, but I really love pizza. So that's a problem for a Jewish kid in that school. What do you do? They want to give you some pizza, but they want to give you some Jesus along with it. And there's a lot of peer pressure. Look, I believe in separation of church and state. I think this one over the line. Natasha Gardner, senior editor at 5280 Magazine. Wrap it up for us. Well, over the line, I think, is a key point here. You know, a church being in a school and paying rent, I, you know, there's probably precedent in examples where that's fine. What seems to be the problem, though, is they continue to just sort of 
make more and more and more mistakes. When when the uh, pr the teacher approached the school district about it or approached the administration, one of their suggestions was that in the morning, instead of going in the main doors, pass a prayer group that he could go in through a side door. Now, when I start to see things like that, it it, it bothers me. Like that that is that really the response that that school has to this situation? So it's not surprising to me that it continued to escalate because there was there was a problem and it was growing. The Colorado Department of Human Services is making headlines again this week as the state faces a potential $1 million sanction. The fine results from federal authorities identifying that the state made changes to the SNAP food assistance program without seeking prior approval. Okay, this just uh, adds to the long list of things we've been talking about the Human Services Department. Uh, not a fun time for uh, John Hickenlooper as he looks at uh, more problems for this department. Yes, when John Hickenlooper releases his biography, which was announced this week, he's going to be writing with Max Potter, his former speechwriter. We're assuming that human services will not have a very big chapter in it because this cannot, as it unfolds page after page, it just looks worse and worse. Now, some of the food stamp problems date long before Hickenlooper even came in. That's always been a troubled area since they had the whole computer mess with CNBC's. It has been disastrous, but it is not looking better. So we have the th letters now from the feds, we have the letters from the county, and we have the letters from the legislators. So I can say it's going to be a long, hot summer at Human Services. Todd, does by itself this seems like a, a fairly light issue, but then when you add it to, just like Patty said, all different things have come down. Does the governor need to make a move here fairly quickly to, to stop the bleeding, or can can this go away and him continue just to make some modest changes in the department? Well, I, I hope it doesn't just go away for the simple fact that at the end of the day, and look, I'm not rooting for someone to be a political winner or a loser here, but there's credibility on the stake, or there's credibility at stake here. Basically, the governor's credibility versus the credibility of those 84 or 86 people who signed on to this letter. Now, if the Hickenlooper administration has bent the rules at all, let's just say, well, maybe they learned a little something from this presidential administration. So I find it kind of ironic that, that this president, who's just being backhanded by the Supreme Court in these eight to one, nine to nothing rulings, that now all of a sudden they're getting, they're going through rules with a fine tooth comb. But look, back to the credibility issue. Uh, the political philosopher Omar in The Wire said, when you come for the king, you best not miss. And I'm very worried that if the General Assembly comes at John Hickenlooper like this, they make these accusations, and then on the same day that Hickenlooper backs his man, we get this bombshell that, that there's a million dollars in potentially these back payments, and the overall liability extends as far up to $4 million. Somebody's got to come, I, I'm not, again, I'm not rooting for someone to win or lose, but someone has got to win or lose in this situation, and it would be a shame, in my opinion, I'm not rooting for Hickenlooper to lose, but it would be a shame if the General Assembly turns out to be the boy who cried wolf in this situation. Yeah, we've had political philosophy quoted from that seat before. Usually it's uh, 18th century French philosophy, but now we can quote the wire. That's a pretty cool range. I like that. Very nice, Todd. Uh, Craig, what do you think? Does the governor need to do something about this? Is, is, really the, the, uh, is there much of a future for Reggie Bika as the head of the department? Can he, can he survive this? I think there are different dimensions to it, some of them political, and I think Governor Hickenlooper will win this pushing match. It reminds me of... Barack Obama defending the VA chief. Eventually it may go, but right now, I don't think the Congress, in the case of the VA, or the state legislature really does have 
the fortitude to stand up to the governor. And I think the governor will win this pushing match, and he's feeling his oats. Look, he survived a very tough election, and writing a book about him, it's not preposterous to think of him on the national stage because Colorado's a swing state, and he's riding some waves that are really influencing the electorate, gay marriage being one of them. Marijuana, even though we know he's kind of played a double game on that, people could say, look, this guy is from Colorado, enough said. And then maybe even on the capital punishment, where he went on the line and stopped Dunlap from being executed. But look what happened in Nebraska. That's pretty startling this week. And I know we're going to talk about the Aurora Theater case, but John Hickenlooper is kind of flexing his muscles now and in that game of push and shove with the, with the legislature. I think he's going to win. And part of it is most people out there don't even know how to pronounce Bika or who he is or what it's about, despite it being talked about around this table. So there's at least five to ten more people who know how to pronounce it now. So right. that's great. Uh, Natasha, what do you think uh, Hickelberg's response to this should be at this latest juncture? We've, we've, had, we've mm -hmm. seen his response to the letter from the lawmakers and the mental health clinics, but this particular violation, again, $1 million is nothing to sneeze at, but it's uh, not something that's going to cripple the state's economy. What do you think? But it's something. This needs to become a focal point of his second term, absolutely. One of the things that, that concerns me is that he, he said that he was surprised by the letter he got from the legislature. Later, which now has turned into two letters from other interested parties as well. Bika said he was surprised about this fine that was coming down from the feds as well. How are these two people who are in charge of this so surprised by the things that they are very much overseeing? So if they are surprised by this, it makes me wonder what other things are, are falling between the cracks. And, and let's keep in mind what the Department of Human Services does. Like These are important programs. There are children, there are families at risk that need these programs. And when we fail them, we failed all those constituents as well. You know, I just reconnected with a source that I'd worked on the story eight years ago about foster care problems. Those problems still exist today, and they were easy fixes. So this may actually not be John's complete fault. You know, I don't think it's easy to, like, point blame on one of these people, but it's something they inherited and they have to fix. So whether that means a change of leadership, whether that means systematic reform within that department, something needs to happen because I'm getting sick of talking about these issues year after year after year. The runoff election in four hotly contested Denver City Council races ends next Tuesday. While a bit under the radar, the political battles in districts 2, 7, 10, and 11 have seemed to intensify. Todd, as you look at the, the races so far, again, where the mayor's already been decided, the auditor's been decided, so this is really a big deal within those districts, but we're talking about four seats in the city council. That, that can change a lot of things in the Denver, uh, Denver uh, government. What, what's your estimation between now that we have four more days to election day? My estimation on uh, just how it's going. Uh, you know, I live in far east Denver, and I've seen virtually no uh, political activity there. It may not be in one of the runoff uh, districts, but you can tell how closely I'm paying attention. Um, <laughs> it seems like uh, you know, you drive through these little pockets of neighborhoods where you see yard signs that cover two blocks, and then immediately you're right back out into just regular old life again, and, and the 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 uh, campaign has stopped. Um, you, you and I were talking off air about. 
about uh, the, the seeming dichotomy in this race that uh, it's all about housing and construction and, and you know, the, the building in Denver, and nobody seems to be talking about the sheriff's office that much. I would agree that that's a, that's a, a failing of this campaign. How do you fix that? I don't know. Uh, the last thing I'd add is uh, about a month ago, Complete Colorado, we broke a story that uh, Aaron Greco, who's in one of these runoffs in District 7, um, he's basically being given free time off. I mean, he's not being paid, but CDOT has given him basically two or three months off to go run his campaign. Uh, if I worked at CDOT and I wanted to start a pizza joint, would they give me three months off to go do this? And so I think CDOT is hoping that they can put an ally as they go forward on that I-70 project. They're hoping they can have an ally on the city council uh, once the dust settles from the election next week. That's an interesting angle. Uh, Craig, you are no stranger to city politics, no stranger, no stranger to city elections. Uh, what do you make of the runoff that we'll know the results from in four days? Well, I'm a little jealous because when I ran in 1996, I had to leave my job and not make any money for a while while I ran. Well, to be clear, Aaron Greco's not being paid. Okay. But, but if he loses, he gets his job back. Well, so yeah. yeah. If I would have won, I would have gotten back into Denver DA's office. So I do think about those things. And... Uh, we had some surprises in the first round, and I think that's attributable to no real interest in the mayoral election, limited turnout ab among people who are highly motivated. Now, when I ran, it was a general election, and it was really hard for an unaffiliated candidate to beat an incumbent Democrat in Denver. But we have a situation where an unaffiliated candidate, Wayne New, is running against a staunch Democrat, Ms. Adams, in the Cherry Creek area. And he's running with Anna Jones. Oh, Anna, excuse me, Anna Jones. Mm -hmm. uh, Anna Jones versus Wayne New. Mm -hmm. Anna Jones is a well-connected Democrat, and Wayne New is unaffiliated, and there are whispers, oh, my God, he once voted Republican or gave money to a Republican, <laughs> which is the kiss of death in Denver, but maybe not in a small turnout election. And that area, thanks for correcting me, Cherry Creek is important because even though it's a neighborhood. We all go there, and it's looking like a downtown area. And is it going to work? I don't know. Of course, the other race that people around this table probably care about, Kevin Flynn, an alumnus of this table. And anybody I won an Emmy with, I have to support him. <laughs> and Dom gave the great news that, again, another nomination for a time travel episode. That's right. That's absolutely right. The uh, for our, our eighth in a row for our interview discussion program, uh, and uh, Kevin Flynn is versus John Kidd in uh, District Kevin Two. Kevin Flynn be John Kidd and John. Well, they're competing, right? right. Uh, Natasha, it's. Uh, it's kind of the inside baseball. Yeah, we, we, there's some bitter battles going on, but as people drive around, like Todd mentioned, throughout the, the, the city, you may not necessarily pick up on it, but there's still a lot of feuding out there going on. Yeah. It's, it's still pretty bitter. What have you picked up? Well, I think one of the, the key things for me and, and a major concern is the turnout, the low turnout that we had on in, in the May election, and then hopefully what will not be a low turnout um, next week, but it probably will. The reason why is that if you spend any time looking at the city council agendas, you will be surprised by how busy that group is, in fact. You know, whether it's it's leading um, not only the city and the state and the country on legalization of marijuana, um, the camping ordinance, whether it's dealing with payouts for police brutality, they're making massive decisions that affect our city, and um, as we've already discussed, with development and, and what happens with low-income housing and how people can actually afford to live in Denver, this is going to be huge. I'm going to take an educated guess and say that the 
audience that's watching this show is probably politically involved already, um, but this is a great opportunity to, you know, when you're out grocery shopping, ask your clerk if they voted. Um, when you're walking down the street, make sure the people in your neighborhood are. Um, do whatever you can to make sure that people take care of this civic responsibility because voting is so important. Patty, the battle in your district is over with after the, the first round, but what do you think of the battles coming up in the second round? Well, I think given what happened in District 1 where Susan Shepard, the incumbent, was ousted, partly because people identified her with developers or, and with incumbents in general, and I think people are very anti-incumbent these days, I think some of the people who seem tied to the establishment, like Anna Jones, it's going to be an issue on this, on this race. I think we might see Wayne New elected. No matter who is elected, though, I think Michael Hancock is going to have a much tougher second term. We know that voters are upset about different things. We know that people both on the council and outside of the council are going to be angling to take over for Hancock when he's done with the second term. And um, so we're going to have a lot more posturing. We're going to have a lot more questioning of what he's doing. As the Aurora Theater trial continues, contents of the defendant's much-talked-about notebook were released this week. Its findings reveal details ranging from estimated police response time to comparisons of security measures at other facilities. Uh, Craig, we, we haven't usually gone through, you know, bit by bit, this is going to be a long trial, so we haven't done a lot with uh, James Holmes' trial, but... Um, this notebook was a major deal. This was what everyone talked about before the trial started, and now it's become part of the trial. You're a lawyer, you're an expert. What did you make of the proceedings this week? This was the biggest week of the trial. Openings were interesting, but we had three major developments, starting with the notebook. The notebook uh, revealed the writings of the perpetrator, and it also had burnt $20 bills. So there was a lot of stuff in there indicating he was crazy. But there are also other things where he's pondering, should I attack an airport? Should I become a serial murderer? And instead he settles on the movie theater because they won't expect it. Not much security. He even calculates the police are three miles away. He's mulling it over, demonstrating an ability to distinguish right from wrong. As for the crazy stuff, understand that the perpetrator, I don't like to use his name, he wanted to commit the crime, survive the crime, anticipated being arrested, prosecuted, and then going to jail. In fact, this came out in the evidence. We heard about it before, that on Internet dating sites, he put up his picture and said, will you visit me in prison? Again, dynamite evidence for the prosecution. And they called uh, the first expert, Dr. Reed, out of Texas. Understand he was the second appointed uh, psychiatrist by the state. He's an interesting guy in that he's a mental health professional who favors capital punishment and has even written on the propriety of mental health professionals participating with prosecutors such as he is doing. So I'm sure the defense will attack him on that saying you're a capital penalty zealot from Texas. We expect this from you. But this jury is watching 22 hours of interviews with the defendant uh, and there's a lot to absorb for them this week. Natasha, are, are we seeing the reason why there is so much battling over this notebook now this week that we're seeing just some of the material coming out of it? Absolutely. I, just judging from the number of conversations I've had about the notebook this week, people are very interested in, in whatever information it might reveal. Um, 
universally, though, I don't think it's provided closure. I think people were hoping that that would give some sort of explanation for why this horrific crime took place. And it doesn't do that. If anything, it presents more questions. Um, skipping away from the trial, but in a related way for a moment, I, I, I've been involved in these conversations as someone who's written about mental health issues in the past. I'm, I'm very concerned about how we discuss this topic because they are related, but also completely different. You know, we know now that one in four people will suffer from a mental illness in their life. That can range from, yes, schizophrenia, but they can also be just mild depression. So when we're having casual conversations about this topic and making broad statements about what the legal definition of insanity is and whether we're informed or not, <laughs> whether we know what we're talking about, there may be somebody who's sitting next to you who suffers from a mental illness who might be very offended but has not chosen to share that diagnosis with you. So I just want to make sure that people are aware of this as we're having these conversations outside of the courtroom as well. Patty, what did you make of what we saw so far from the uh, case? Well, there were a lot of bombshells here. And one of the things is personally, as you think about this, you are like, you would hope that no person in their right mind could possibly do something this horrific because you always are looking for explanations whenever you write about a horrible crime situation. But the fact uh, Natasha's right that people don't understand the legal difference between mental illness and being in, judged not guilty by reason of insanity. And there are there is evidence in that notebook that you know he was what we would say crazy. Certainly, I don't think a good dating theory is to say come visit me in prison. But there was a lot of there were a lot of other things that indicated he was just not really on the planet at the time. On the other hand, you could see that he was a really superior intellect and making a lot of plans, capable of making some plans. So we still have so much of this trial to go and so much heartache for the jurors, for the victims, for everyone who is watching. Todd, do you think we're seeing one of the biggest weeks of the trial with uh, the, revealing, the, the, reveal, the, the revealing of all these different details? Yeah, and quite frankly, I think the notebook is, is the least of this evidence. Once we got into the interview portions of, of the interview with this, the, the mental health professionals, that's where I really started to see more about the perpetrator's mindset. Um, I think Patty brings up great points about, you know, the, the definition of criminal insanity, but, I, you know, I'm looking at this trial from someone that I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't really, I've not been given a tutorial on the, the definition of criminal insanity, but I think the prosecution, I, I don't see a single mistake they've made so far. I see them just connecting the dots all over the place. I think the psychiatrist made the distinction that the perpetrator was mentally ill but criminally sane and I think that's a distinction that is easy for a jury to understand that you can be both at the same time uh, also in the interview uh, the perpetrator seemed to express empathy for parents of like his own parents or people that might be parents of someone that would commit an atrocity like that and expressions of empathy like that in my mind are incredibly damning to any notion of of being criminally insane should be a new watch. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Uh, Patty, as always, start us off. Well, I'm going to return to school, but not this time in Florence. I'm going to go up to Longmont, where a kid who was supposed to be the valedictorian, give the valedictorian speech where he was going to announce that he was gay, uh, had that honor removed from him by the principal. Todd. Disgrace of the Week. As for me, it's always open records, and so this time it goes to the University of Northern Colorado for giving a really bizarre exemption. Uh, you know, someone had asked 
to see the contract between the university and a Starbucks. And the university basically came back and said, no, we have a proprietary clause in there. And so, uh, and, and I think at one point they even said, we neither confirm nor deny the existence. And, uh, you know, the Starbucks is right there on campus. So I'm sure you have some kind of contract. So there's my disgrace of the week. week. <laughs> Craig. Oh, I have to give it to the family, Clinton. I read that book, Clinton Cash, and it is just disgraceful what our former president and secretary of state did. And uh, as a former prosecutor, I look at Rule 404B2, evidence of similar transactions. There's a modus operandi here. There's a method of operation, and it doesn't make me happy to say that they are corrupt. Natasha. I'm going to try to prevent a disgrace. Um, right now, there are a lot of Colorado farmers that have been so devastated by the rain. It hit at a time in the planting season and on the sort of emergence season. They're having to replant entire crops. It's going to be a very difficult year for them. So if you have a chance to avoid the disgrace, go out, support your local farmers. It's just starting to be farmer's market season. Make sure that you, you help them through this time. You're here. Season the nice about somebody. Patty? University of Denver for two reasons. I went to a great symposium on Sand Creek after we filmed here last Friday. And then on Sunday, on Monday, they won the lacrosse tournament. Un unbelievable for that victory to come. First time it's ever crossed the Appalachians, mm -hmm. and University of Denver got it. And ironically, it's a game created by Native Americans. Pretty cool. John Mosley, uh, a real athletic pioneer, uh, and he was a member of the Tuskegee Air Corps. Uh, I happened to be at a Nuggets game back in February. It was Black History Month, and during the breaks, they would honor various people. And let me tell you, when they introduced John Mosley, uh, he got the loudest and the longest standing ovation. And I, it gives me chills now to think that I was able to be at this game where he was honored just months before now that he's passed away. So rest in peace, John Mosley, an incredible American life. Greg. Ayan Hirsi Ali, she wrote a book called A Heretic. She was born a Muslim in Africa, moved to Mecca, was a devout Muslim for much of her life. Now she's an atheist, she lives in Manhattan, and she's a liberal. And she's written a book addressed to other liberals, liberals about the threat of radical Islam. It's called Heretic. Hmm. Natasha. To the Colorado student who made it to the finals of the Spelling Bee, as someone who desperately needs spell checker, I am so impressed. I, uh, I'm a former Spelling Bee geek, never as good as that finalist. <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. I, I love to see a Colorado uh, uh, student do, do well. Uh, as Craig alluded to early in the show, I wanted to uh, uh, extend our congratulations to our whole crew and uh, my co-producer, Larry Patchett. We uh, did receive our, our eighth nomination in a row for, uh, Emmy nomination in a row for Colorado Inside Out, the Time Machine episode. Last year, we went back to 1964. Our own Craig Silverman was a uh, cameo on the series, a uh, cameo on the show with, uh, uh, featured as uh, uh, Police Chief Harold Dill, and of course, uh, Penny Cahoon along with uh, uh, Kevin Flynn, Danny Newsom, and David Kopel. Uh, but it's really because of uh, everyone behind the scenes. Uh, Larry Patchett, as I said, he's my co-producer. He's, he's our uh, Mr. Peabody to my boy Sherman, so <laughs> it, uh, it makes it, it all go around. And uh, Later this summer, on uh, July 3rd, we'll be going back to our uh, time machine to uh, 1940, so it should be a fun one there, too. Hope you can join us. That is all the time we have tonight. Thank you very much for tuning in. Remember that if you missed any part of the show or want to catch our web-exclusive segment, CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube, and also be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. You'll also won't want to miss our new magazine series, Street Level, Tuesdays at 8 p.m., looking at the food, arts, and community stories on some of our historic streets. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.